Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's good to see you all again. Some of you may be seeing me for the first time. Others may have forgotten who I was. I've been in the kids wing for the last six months, <laughs> but I'm happy to be back here this morning with you again. Um, I have a great pleasure of uh, starting us off on a new series that's going to be taking us to the end of June, and uh, we're calling this The Great Exchange. So I'm going to hopefully introduce you to it this morning, and uh, I'm excited for what God's going to do through this. Uh, I want to start with a quote. <coughs> There's a guy named Bertrand Russell. Some of you may have heard of him. He was a British philosopher, uh, mathematician, historian, writer, social critic, educated at Cambridge University, brilliant man, considered to be one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. He most famously wrote a book called Why I Am Not a Christian. This is a quote from his book. He says, I do not pretend to be able to prove that there is no God. I equally cannot prove that Satan is a fiction. The Christian God may exist. So may the gods of Olympus or of ancient Egypt or of Babylon. But no one of these hypotheses is more probable than any other. They lie outside the region of even probable knowledge. And therefore, there is no reason to consider any of them. He's <laughs> a brilliant man, way smarter than any of you and I, I assume. This is what he says about Christianity. What are we doing here? Here's another person, another brilliant man, C.S. Lewis. He was a, a, a British poet, academic, ac educated at Oxford University. He held the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge. Famous for writing a lot of books, Chronicles of Narnia, Screwtape Letters, Mere Christianity. He was not just a children's author, he was a world-renowned scholar at Oxford University. Brilliant man. This is what he says of Christianity. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Equally brilliant man, very different conclusion. I'm going to do a few more here. Richard Dawkins. Some of you may have heard of him. Born 1941. He's one of the leading evolutionary biologists. He was the uh, University of Oxford's professor of public understanding of science uh, for, from 1995 to 2008. He read Bertrand Russell's book, Why Am I Not a Christian? and lost his childhood faith. And he's gone on to write many books, one of his most famous books being called The God Delusion. And he's got a lot of really <laughs> aggressive quotes towards Christianity. Here's one that's not quite as harsh. But he says, faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Faith is foolish. So says Richard Dawkins, a brilliant biologist. John Lennox, another professor at Oxford, currently in mathematics. Brilliant man, degrees from Cambridge and Oxford, and he has written a lot of books as well. In one of them, he says, faith is not a leap in the dark. It's the exact opposite. It's a commitment based on evidence. It is irrational to reduce all faith to blind faith and then subject it to ridicule. That provides a very anti-intellectual and convenient way 
of avoiding intelligent discussion. Interesting. Very different conclusion, equally brilliant man. Two more. Peter Hitchens, oh sorry, Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens passed away in 2011. He was one of the leading voices in the new atheism movement. Brilliant uh, journalist, literary critic. He was one of the hardest people to debate against. He just knew how to turn a phrase and make you look silly in what you're saying. And he says this in his book, which was very influential in 2000, uh, 2007 called The God Delusion. He says, one must state it plainly. Religion comes from the period of human prehistory where nobody, not even the mighty Democritus, who concluded that all matter was made from atoms, had the smallest idea what was going on. It comes from the bawling and fearful infancy of our species, and it is a babyish attempt to meet our inescapable demand for knowledge, as well as for comfort, reassurance, and our infantile needs. Pretty harsh. That's Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens' younger brother, Peter Hitchens. And in my experience, younger brothers are often the more intelligent ones, but that's just, <laughs> that's just my experience. Uh, Chris, Peter Hitchens, same family, same upbringing, similarly educated. He's a renowned journalist and author. He says this about Christianity. He's a Christian. The most dangerous idea in human history remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. It alters the whole of human behavior and all of our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and hope. Why am I reading these quotes to you? Here's what I'm hoping comparing these quotes can help illustrate. Belief in God, and perhaps even more specifically, faith in Christ, is never merely a matter of the intellect. You have brilliant people, brilliant men and women, coming from, you know, same, sometimes the same childhood upbringing, educated at similar places, you know, IQs similarly, the same and yet they come to this, they look at the same evidence and they come, at they come to very different conclusions about what it's saying to us. Faith in Christ, belief in God, is never merely an act of the mind. If you start playing the game, this brilliant person says this, this brilliant person says that, you're going to realize how futile that process is. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we don't engage the mind. I'm not saying that we don't come at it thinking deeply and have these discussions. I think apologetics is a great way to clear, clear the view to the cross for people that have very reasonable doubts or questions about faith. I'm not trying to say we should be anti-intellectual. I'm just saying it can never be only about the mind. There's more at play when we're thinking about faith in Christ and belief in God in general. And so here's, the, here's what I hope you'll grant me this morning. That the interplay between mind, will, and emotion, you know, is not as neatly disconnected as we might think. Our mind is just not so neatly detached from our hearts. And our will is not separate from our mind and emotions. There is an interplay there. 
that we have to realize is sometimes messy and hard to separate, and I don't think we actually can separate it. I think we are whole beings, and I think this is what the Bible says, I'm going to try to hopefully illustrate that to you, that need, we need all of who we are, our mind, will, and emotions to be addressed and to be brought forward before God. Because here's what I have experienced in my own life, and I, I, I'm assuming you can probably relate, that I can be convinced of something in my mind. I can be sure this is true in my mind. I know this is true. And yet my heart is <laughs> not feeling that. I can convince about a truth of Christianity, but actually my heart is operating on a very different level, and it's affecting my behavior way more than what my mind is saying it believes. I've even had the experience of my will, where my what either things that I say or things that I do betrays even my heart and my emotions. I, I love this person. I have affection for this person. Why did I just say that? Why did I just do that? It's like my will was set operating even independently from my mind and my emotions. What is going on here? And we can't disconnect them so easily. And I think that's the, wa- the reason why you've people that are brilliant um, arrive at very different conclusions. Because it's not a matter of the intellect, merely. And so we're starting a new series this morning, and we've called it The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange. And we've called it this for two main reasons. Um, I want to tell you the first reason now. I'm going to look at the second reason at the end. But we're taking the next 13 weeks to look at different aspects of the gospel and consider this. How, how in the fall, when we stepped away from God, from the very beginning until even now, on a daily basis, when we step away from what God would have us do, when we step away from faith and trust in Christ, how in that process, both back then and even today as we live out our lives, how have we exchanged what is good and beautiful and true for what is evil, ugly, and a lie? And so we're calling it the great exchange. The first one is because of the the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, Paul has this great section of scripture where he's he's explaining and describing what has happened kind of generally in the fall. What happened in this process. And uh, Eugene Peterson, I read a quote this week. He says, on the first page of the Bible, we read that God creates life. Two pages later, men and women choose death. God gives us truth and life. He says, choose this, and we choose death. So what was all involved when we chose death? Romans 1. I've got a portion of it on the slide below. I'm going to start in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being 
and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, and they exchanged the truth about God. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Notice what's all involved in this fall. He says, what can be known about God is plain. His, his qualities can be understood in the mind. Their thinking became futile. They suppressed their truth with their wickedness, with their actions. They knew him, but they chose to worship, chose not to worship him. Their hearts were darkened. God gave them over to their sinful desires of their hearts. You see how the fall affects all parts of us, our will, mind, and emotions? Our thinking is futile. We chose not to give thanks. Our hearts were darkened. All of us have been affected by this, by this decision to step away from God. And so, Scripture very rarely separates mind, will, and emotion. It just doesn't. I mean, you can find some verses that talk specifically about a mind. You can find some verses that talk about choosing, um, and maybe even some that talk about emotions with that language. But what the, the word the Bible uses over and over again, which basically includes all of these things, is the word heart. You know, today we maybe think heart is only the seed of emotions. But when the Bible talks about the heart, it doesn't mean simply the emotion. It means, the, it means all of us. It means our inner being. And so Tim Keller says it this way. He says, our heart is the center of our personality, the seat of our fundamental commitments, the control center of the whole person. What is in the heart determines what we think, do feel since mind, will, and emotions are all rooted here and how the Bible talks about the heart. I'll give you a few examples so that you can see this throughout scripture and I could give you a lot more examples than this, trust me. Genesis chapter six, when God decides that the world needs to be restarted. Why does he do that? Because in verse five, it says, the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. The thoughts of the heart. He looks down at creation. He says, all, all of you, the thoughts of your heart are just always against me. Always against me. Mark chapter 2. Jesus forgave a paralyzed man. Some of you probably know the story. He forgave a paralyzed man. First he heals them. or He says, I forgive you. And then he heals them. And their people are like, why did you say you could forgive him? And then it says that Jesus looked at the teachers of the law and he could tell that they were upset with him. And it says uh, in verse 8, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. Their hearts were thinking. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. He looks at them, he sees their hardened hearts, he sees them choosing not to accept, he sees their emotions set against him. He says, why are you thinking these things in your heart? The whole ministry of Jeremiah, and there's a great 
uh, there's a great uh, uh, command here in, in uh, Jeremiah 4 that uh, is picked up by Paul as, a, as an argument throughout the New Testament. And in the time of Jeremiah, you have Israel outwardly obeying, um, following the outward uh, requirements of the covenant. And one of the, in Jewish culture, one of the, 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 the most important outward signs that, we were, that they were uh, following God was circumcision. That was, they, they did that in faith and obedience. So this was an outward sign of our, of our commitment to God. That they, if they had that, they were following God. And Jeremiah comes to them. And God speaks through him and says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Israel, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. That's a, that, was, that would have been like a radical message, that they just so clearly understood it outwardly, and they were doing outwardly what they needed to do. And he says, you've missed the point. You think it's about circumcision outwardly? It's about circumcision of the heart. And Paul picks up that message several times, Philippians 3, Romans 2. He says, a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward or physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit. It's a matter of the heart. Last example, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. This is one of the great promises of scripture. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a confession of the mouth because of a belief in the heart. Not an emotional, not merely an emotional belief. It's a belief that... That consumes all of us, that involves every part of us. He says, because of this, you will be saved. So it isn't enough to just agree intellectually with the claims of Christ. Saving faith, saving faith always combines rational knowledge with the conviction and trust of the heart. Jesus' command to repent is always attached with a, not simply a, a choosing outwardly, but it's always attached to a trust, that we trust him. Where does trust take place? Just in the mind? Or is it, is it involved the heart as well? We have to be coming to him with, with our hearts, with all of who we are. And so, please hear me this morning. Regardless of where you're at in your faith this morning, this might be your first Sunday at church, this, you might be following Christ for 30 years, 40 years, know you may be just checking things out regardless of where you are every person in this room has to come to christ in the exact same way we have to come to him through the gospel the gospel is not something that we just agree you know agree to at the beginning of our faith and then we're done with it as we said here several times the gospel is not the abc of the christian life it's the a to z of the christian life it's the a to z and so, the second reason we're calling this series The Great Exchange is because Martin Luther, who is a great reformer, famously referred to the gospel as the great exchange. The great exchange. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is what he's, he's, he's saying. And here we see the gospel, and you can see the exchange taking place. He says, 
for the sake for our sake Jesus made him or God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God for our sake God made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God Jesus came the whole point that Jesus came of Jesus coming was to take the sin of the world upon himself. He took it on himself. He took all the ugliness that we've created in our rebellion. He took all the evil that we've stirred up. He's to- he took all the lies that we believe and we act on. He took all of that and he put it on himself. He put it on himself and he exchanged that and he, and he gave us the righteousness of God. He gave us everything that was beautiful, everything that was good, everything that was true. And he says, that's for you. What was mine I give to you. It's the great exchange that when we decided to exchange for lie, he says, I'm going to give you what is true. Believe in me and this will be yours. There's a great, there's a great um, little story in Luke 2, and I've just been taking a class at Tyndale studying through the book of Luke. And this just jumped out to me. Um, it's in Luke 2. It's the beginning of um, Jesus is still a child, and Joseph and Mary bring him to the temple. And this was the custom at the time, it was a requirement of the law that they would offer him, and they would offer a sacrifice as kind of a way to devote him to the Lord. And there's a man there waiting for them, a man by the name of Simeon. And Simeon, uh, it says that he was a devout and righteous man, and it had been revealed to him through the Holy Spirit that before he died, he would get to see the Messiah. He knew that the Messiah was going to come. And when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple, he looks and he sees Jesus, who's still a child. And he knows right away, this is the person who's going to save us. This is our deliverer. And, it, and, it's, and it's called the Song of Simeon in Luke 2, starting in verse 29. He, he, it says he, um, he took Jesus in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. He is a light of revelation for the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. He sees Jesus, says that is the truth. He's a light of revelation. We have a world of darkness, and he sees Jesus, even just as a child, and he says, that's the truth, that's what's good. That's what's beautiful. And he says, this person, through this person, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And one of the hopes of this series is that we would be able to ask ourselves this question. What are the thoughts of our hearts that need to be revealed? What are the thoughts of Cornerstone Community Church, of you personally, What are the thoughts of your heart that still need to be revealed? What are the ways in which we are still living in the fall? 
all of us, every single one of you, I don't know your stories. I don't know where you're at. I know that we can't relate on every issue. But here's what I can say for certain. You are still living in some way in the fall. Your heart is still believing something. That's not true. I don't think we're going to ever get over that until one day when we're with him, we'll see things clearly. But all of us on some level are still, our hearts are still believing something that's not true. And we're operating out of that. So what are the thoughts of our hearts that need to be revealed? What are the ways in which we are still living in the fall with our mind or our hearts or our wills? Because here's what I know in my own life, and I, here's what I, I believe that is true on some level for you too. We may say that our value is found in Christ. I mean, I can believe that in my mind. I really, I really do. I believe that with, with all of my heart. But sometimes I feel worthless when I start comparing myself to other people. I believe my value is in Christ. I am with him. He's, I'm an image bearer of God. That is where my value comes from. But when I start looking and comparing myself to other people, I can feel worthless. That's my heart operating out of the lie of the fall. Even though I know it, it still reigns here sometimes. Or this, we may, see, we may be able to say that our identity is found in Christ. Why are so many of our decisions coming out of insecurities? We respond to people, we do things that's coming out of an insecurity of our heart. We might be able to say, yeah, that's my identity, my identity is in Christ. And, but many times, we're basing our reactions and our decisions out of insecurities that still exist. When we fully embrace our identity of Christ, insecurities go away. We may sing that Christ makes us blameless and pure. But why is it that sometimes we're terrified that if we are fully known by people, we're going to be rejected? And so we hide ourselves. We, hide our, we try to hide ourselves from God. We try to hide ourselves from each other because we're absolutely terrified that if we let ourselves fully be known, if you fully knew me, if you actually knew what was going on, you would reject me. Actually, when we trust in the gospel, he says, I, when Jesus, we look at Jesus, he says, I see you, I fully know you, and I fully love you. That fear gets banished. But I don't know about you, but I, I still operate out of that. And we may say that our lives are for the glory of God, but why does it rise up, why does it rip us apart sometimes when other people get credit for things that we think we deserve credit for. If we say our lives, all my life is for the glory of God, it doesn't matter what credit or attention I get, but when other people get credit for things that you do, or get attention when you feel like you should get attention, it can rip us apart. Why is that? Because we haven't fully grasped that it's not about us, it's about, it's about God and his glory. There is tremendous freedom when we are walking in the truth of the gospel, and that's reigning true in our hearts it frees us up to be a people and so these are questions we need to keep asking ourselves we need and i hope even as we go through this series and we look at different ways in which we're we're believe where the gospels exchange lies that we believe for truth i hope we can just keep asking ourselves this question if there's one thing that you can if i i hope you t leave this morning remembering is this question what are the thoughts of my heart that still need to be revealed whether that be something in my mind that I'm not believing or heart that I'm not embracing or my will that I'm not 
responding? What way in which that interplay needs to be reoriented? I want to end by uh, reading a prayer to you that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. It's in Ephesians chapter 3. This is a prayer he wrote. And remember, this is a prayer for Christians. This is for people that already have Christ in their heart. And so regardless of where you're coming from this morning, um, whether you're not a Christian or, or you're a, a Christian for many years, this is equally applicable to you. And I want to conclude with this prayer. He says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.